Welcome to Passing Years CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, Dr. Rachel Johnson, a speech-language pathologist, having a conversation on ethics and communication, part one. I'd like to welcome everyone to this episode of Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. And I'm very excited to share that in this podcast, we've brought back Dr. Rachel Johnson to chat with us some about patients' rights and our ethical responsibility to help patients access communication. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. So Rachel, it's exciting because in the beginning of the season, we had you on for our first podcast talking about AAC. And now I've got you back at the end of the season, and we're going to be chatting about patients' rights to communication and our ethical responsibilities. And I think this is a nice topic to kind of round out our season. And I was thinking we could start with maybe chatting a little bit about ASHA's sharing of the Communication Bill of Rights on their website. Do you mind filling us in a little bit about that background? It was really I think, I don't know where, you know, I don't know the history of it specifically, but ASHA has a nice webpage and a video uh, really explaining the background of it. And it was really put into place to ensure that the pediatric population with developmental disabilities, um, those ethical rights of the having communication of the right to communicate are, are there and laid down. And, but it applies, I mean, I really, I use it as like this launching point in my courses because it lays out that communication is a right and all those myths that are, you know, clinicians and the community and, and everywhere they think about AAC as this last ditch effort or there's prerequisites to it or right, all of these myths that are we have shown through research aren't true. The NJC Communication Bill of Rights really lays out nicely that they need to have the right one, to know that it's available, right? And that there is communication and that they can communicate and they can learn by using this. It doesn't replace their speech. It's not going to, you know, halt their their communication in any way. If anything, it's going to facilitate their language development. Um, so it's a nice, I think, if you're a clinician in a workplace and you're having these conversations um, and it really hinges on, you know, infringing on the person's communication rights, you have this document to say, this is the National Joint Committee, and these are the Communication Bill of Rights, and you have this document to use as, you know, the, if not, we're not providing it, we're really going against their rights. You know, it's funny you said what you did, because that was actually the argument, I'll say, I'll use the word argument, that I would use with families, because sometimes even the family, though, was like, oh, we don't want a device. We want them to talk, you know, and, and I would talk to them about, and this is whether peds or adults. I said, yeah. wait a minute. I said, first of all, they need communication now and they're not going to talk now. Right. And I said, it will actually help them. It's almost like a continuous therapy with them, you know, to help facilitate mm-hmm. because some, some will, people will learn to imitate. Mm-hmm. They'll start to imitate what the device says, that type of thing. So it really does help to facilitate speech and language. And like you said, not a last resort, but that was something I had to educate families on frequently. Yeah. And, you know, I think 
I think it really is, we're doing such a disservice if we're withholding it until it's a last resort, you know, all through all that time, we don't, we don't have a magic ball to say they're going to be verbal communicators, right? We have no idea. We hope that they will, but we don't know how long it's going to take or what that journey looks like for them as they are maybe regaining that or developing those verbal skills. And so in that interim, you know, we really, it's a disservice if we're not, and maybe even to some point it's unethical for us not to offer it or not to provide some means. Um, sometimes we are doing it and we don't call it that, which is fine. Um, but, you know, it does, it, it is an ethical piece, I think, of our practice. I think so also, you know, from an ethical standpoint, we've got, but we're supposed to ethically be providing patients with the best evaluation, the best treatment modality that's appropriate for them. Uh, we're supposed to be the expert, you know, that's, that's providing that we're supposed to have competencies in what we're looking at providing. And so we really need to be aware of, of the options. And then we need to be reviewing those with our patient or our client and helping them adjust to the changes. That's part of the counseling role that we have you know, educating them and helping them to adjust and then providing them with whatever the best avenue is for them to have communication. Well, I would even go a step farther in that if we're really doing person-centered care, they have to, the person who is the, right, the middle person who is the point, like the, the center of it all has to be able to be part of those conversations. And if they aren't, if they don't have a way to communicate, they can't participate in their care. Very true. Right. So if, you know, first and foremost, we should identify what are strategies that are going to help them participate in their care. So when we are giving them options of treatment or we're giving them options for um, uh, different approaches to their care, you know, do they want, do they even want to work on speech? I've had patients who don't want to work on speech. They'd rather use the device um, because working on their speech is a lot of work and they really are like, you know, I didn't talk that much before. So, you know, I'm cool with this. Um, and then there's others who, you know, I don't want the device. I really want to work on my speech and that's their option as well. But in order to know that and understand that and really capture who they are and what is important to them and their cultural pieces that are really going to drive their motivation and, and really identify what is most important for them to work on in the limited amount of time that we have for insurance, they have to be able to communicate and we're just to be part of that conversation. When you look at what a code of ethics is, generally speaking, not talking about ASHA code of ethics. It talks about the patients. One of the principles of ethics is autonomy, mm-hmm. which is that patient's ability to provide for themselves, you know, to be able to, to participate themselves and to have some control over what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think, critical. Well, it is critical. I won't say I think it's critical critical that we provide that to patients. And uh, we can do that by evaluating what their best option is for communication, not pen and paper. It can be. If it, it sometimes be. that might sometimes it might be, and it may be a short-term piece, right? Um, it may not be something long standing, but if 
that is a way for them to at least start that journey, that's great. Um, you know, it, it takes time to get these speech generated devices in their hands if it's going to be a long term um, condition where they're not going to be able to communicate. But we have to balance both of those, right? You have to you have to balance the piece of the AAC part while you are still working on that natural communication, right? So it's not an either or. It is cohesive it's it's things that are together and how do you know how do you how do you know if they're how they're feeling about their treatment if they don't have a way to communicate that right right and when I said the pen and paper I was like that's we don't want to have that be the fallback like everybody just gets pen and paper is what I was kind of getting at with that but the now what you just said is important. So we have a case study that we share and it's a tracheostomy patient. And I particularly like this study. We're talking with him. He's gotten a valve now, but he was talking about before having the valve, he couldn't communicate. And what happened for him was that the medical staff were misinterpreting what he was trying to convey through gesture. And they mm-hmm. thought he was saying he was sick and in pain. And so they were giving him more pain medication more nausea medication, which in turn was making him sicker and dizzier and more not, you know, and more nauseous and everything. And it was like a vicious cycle. And he said he, he couldn't get it across to them because he'd become more agitated and they thought the agitation was part of pain. And so they'd give him more pain medication. He'd get more nauseous. And when they tried to move him, he'd get more nauseous and he was trying to convey all of this. And so he said for about a week, that he just was continuously nauseous, dizzy, um, and just just about couldn't move because of the medications and he couldn't get across to them and he couldn't write. He, his, he had too much weakness to be able to write and he just couldn't get it across to them. He, when they got the valve on him and he could speak, he was able to tell them to stop. He didn't actually want the medication. He wasn't in pain. And he was like, stop, you know, I don't need all of that. And he said he finally got to feeling a little better because he wasn't getting so much medication. Yes. And it really caused issues for him not being able to communicate in his care. Wow. Yeah. Right. And and that could have easily been solved by just even some strategies for communication, right? Establishing that consistent yes, no. And then until, because he can't write in his week, just... Um, you know, are you in pain? Yes or no? And having that consistent response and, you know, and not relying completely on gestures, but really even just giving nurses some education on how to communicate with them to confirm or negate what their suspicions are. Well, and you make a good point. I think that to assist with the communication aspect, you've got to make sure all the staff are educated and mm-hmm. are using the same system because we mm-hmm. have had that come up where, you know, this person says blink once for yes and twice for no. The next person says blink once for no and twice for yes. And they're reversing it, you know, and it, that can cause confusion. So making sure that there's an established, consistent means of communication between everybody who's working with that patient. And having it posted somewhere that people know where to look, right? And those are all systematic pieces within whatever your facility is. Um, and every, you know, HIPAA guidelines and privacy, right? All of those are going to really play a role in where that location is. Is it in the chart? Is it somewhere in the room that's under, you know, in a folder in a room somewhere that you check before you go 
um, communicate, like however that, whatever that looks like. And ADA, Joint Commission, CARF accreditation, all of them have communication as a point within Mm -hmm. what they recommend or require that facilities provide. And so that's something also to keep in mind. It's not just Oh, patients should have a right to communicate. It's it's a huge thing. It's a huge right. And mm-hmm. ethically, it's a big piece of the puzzle, but it's also mandated by multiple different commissions mm-hmm. and groups. And you you started out talking about one group that gives a good background on that's specific to communication. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also bring up the some of the barriers that clinicians face when trying to provide the best means of communication or modality or identifying the best modality, you know, it, it not a, every clinician had an opportunity to get that hands-on experience during their clinical training, which we know is really one of the most um, powerful ways of them knowing and feeling competent when they go into their clinical practice. And then also, you know, it takes time and they're often pressed for time. Productivity standards are, you know, incredibly demanding and it takes time to do your resource, your, your um, identifying the resource, creating the materials, identifying what is most appropriate. And not every um, facility is like understands or even really appreciates that it does require a lot of time and more time than you're going to get billed for. Um, So, you know, it's, it's a vicious loop, but I think advocacy is a huge piece of it on all fronts. I think clinicians, a lot of clinicians identify and understand that this is something they need to be doing. They should be doing, but for Many of them, because it wasn't part of their graduate education, or even, you know, they may not have really had any hands-on clinical training with it at all, even a class, right? Um, They don't even know where to begin. And it's really daunting. I think that that background, having the competencies, I mentioned that we actually have that in our code of ethics. We're supposed to be competent in what we're providing. And you're right, that's a huge barrier because there's no way in a graduate program to get everything. Mm-hmm. And that's where some of our continuing education comes in. You know, we have to seek out that that would be helpful. And AAC is in every setting, the ability or working with patients for an access to communication is in every setting, whether you're in the schools, whether you're in hospitals, SNFs, home health children, adults, pediatric adult, it, it affects everybody. And so that's an area that if it's not in a graduate program is a really good area to seek out some continuing education in it. That does not get rid of all the barriers, but it at least starts helping on that competency side. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, when you become uh, aware and competent, then you can be a better advocate right? Because then you have, you have a good understanding and grounding to go to, you know, your employer or to administration or your direct boss or whatever, whoever that may be to advocate the school system, right? To advocate for the best services um, instead of kind of 
being told that, okay, we're going to, this, this school district is going to adopt these devices and anybody who needs AAC is going to get these devices. Okay. That's just not okay. Um, and being a good advocate to say why that's not okay, right, is, is a big piece of it. I think for us to get there, um, there's maybe we, we know professional development is a good place. We know networking, providing networking and collaboration is all a good place. But I think some, some things that we may need to uh, or maybe look at in a different way are how, what does that look like? I think going to a webinar or going to a workshop or those things, they they are okay, right? But how many of us go to any of those things and then go put it into practice? Very, you know, where you take some yes. of it with you, right? You take some of it with you. But um, when it's something that is really uh, requires multiple steps and to do multiple things, you'll take a piece of it and you'll apply it. and. Um, but it's really an ongoing process. So maybe we have to rethink or reimagine or look at what does that um, professional development look like in order for us to really feel equipped. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a mentoring program. Maybe instead of just a one and done or you know grabbing things here and there, maybe it's really more of... Um, having someone walk us through or be a point person or a, a contact when we do need some guidance in getting through that process. Cause we'll have different questions for different people, right. For different situations. Well, that's true. And I, we say that a lot, you know, in our field, it's great to be able to have a mentor. You know, we all have people we look up to and people that have either practiced longer or have practiced in that particular area and have maybe a little bit more experience and are able to help you decide, you know, what direction to go and, you know, how to plan things out. So seeking a mentor is always a, a strong um, area that's going to be beneficial, I think, um, over just pen and paper learning, I'll say book learning. Um, yeah. You've got to have a little bit more application and having someone to guide you in that application is good. When you're in those... Um remote areas, right, where you don't have access to a lot of those resources, or maybe you're the only clinician and you're covering a large territory, um, you know, there's always those AAC reps that you can reach out to, but, you know, they have a, there's a bit of a bias. There's always going to be a bias in that and, you know, being able to navigate that and identify, okay, what are the things I really need to be looking for to um, help my client or my patient you know, match what really identify what's going to fit their needs best um, beyond that sales pitch, right? So very interesting. It was the Toby Dynavox rep who was sharing that sometimes she's going out to these places to set up their equipment and she's just like, this is not the right setup for you, mm -hmm. right? And she's just like, it puts her in a very awkward position um, where she can't make those clinical recommendations or she can't do any of the changes, but, you know, she's like thinking like this really is not the right setup for you, even though, you know, she's there to do this setup for her company's um, stuff. So, yeah. That actually leads into, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. One is that selection of the appropriate device and 
in talking about the right device, that's another avenue. I don't want to say avenue. I've just lost my train of thought. I want to delve a little bit more into some of the ethical question marks that may come up um, when it ta- when we talk about these patients, and that's getting into finding we don't have a responsibility to just give them communication, but to give them the right type of communication for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's limited by what we have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, we have boundaries because if it's AAC, if it's AAC, it might be that only certain devices are available where you are or in the, in the facility that you're in. Um, you may have none in your facility or you may, you know, or have access. And I've gotten calls on that before where people are like, I don't even know where to go to get a device. Mm-hmm. And the same thing comes up with the valve. I don't know, you know, how do we get a valve? We, we don't have them in our hospital. We don't carry mm-hmm. valves. You know, how do we get these things for our patients? And that's something that we have a responsibility to, you know, mm-hmm. seek out that information. But let's talk a little bit about some situational things. Like if you have a patient that comes in and just like the one you shared earlier, where someone has evaluated them or assessed them and they've said they need this type of device. And then say they go elsewhere to get fitted and actually have the device provided to them mm-hmm. and show, set up. And then that person's like, Oh wait, this isn't the right device. Mm-hmm. What would you do in that situation. If you were the person, let's say you're the person, you know, going in and helping them get it set up and you realize it's not the right device for them. Well, I mean, I think it depends on what that role is. So if it's the device representative, they can't, you know, they can't make any of those clinical decisions, right? That's not their role or their job. I think it's really having a conversation amongst the team and identifying, okay, this is a situation we're in right now. How do we work within what we have? If it's, you know, if the insurance company has already approved it and bought it, and that's what the treating clinician has recommended, it really falls on the treating clinician to then make sure that the individual knows how to use the system and are able to navigate, have the operational competencies, the linguistic competencies, the social competencies um, to use that that communication system, right, in their everyday life. Um, It really isn't, and, you know, the example I gave is uh, that it isn't the device representative's role to do that, nor is it their role to make the recommendation for, you know, which system is the best. So it really falls on the clinician. I don't know that we can ever say that there's a right device for any specific person. It really is going through our assessment, just like we go through an assessment for any patient that we see. Um, The the only difference in our AAC assessment is that we are, as we are identifying their their sensory um, skills, you know, can they hear, can they see, how can how well are their cranial nerves or sensory for their cranial nerves, right? And then we're looking at all those motor aspects and we're doing our motor speech assessment, we're doing our language assessment. And Along the way is where we're also adding in that piece for um, an augmentative communication system is what are the strategies that best fit where those impairments are? And then as a clinician, we're, we're then looking at what 
okay, what are the things that are going to help you? And where are those gaps in your communication? And what are some tools that might be beneficial? And then trialing them. We don't know until we actually actually use them. And so if if it it may be one language system that might be really good for the cl- for the client, and maybe I think more often than not, it may be the clinician isn't very um, comfortable with that language system, perhaps, right? So there might be a little bit more reserve to get a system, even though that fits really well for that client's needs. They may not feel as though they are fit to be the one coaching them or helping them use that system. And that's a that that needs to kind of go to the wayside and um, the clinician needs to really then seek help, right? To be sure that they can help that person really use the system that's going to fit them best. But it is, it is a trial thing. It is a, you know, if you have these needs, then maybe this system may be a good fit for you, but let's trial it first. And in an AAC eval, if you're doing high-tech devices, that's built into our billing code, right? So you're given those three hours and then additional hours to do those trials and to see and to identify that. If it's an acute care and they're evolving and they're changing, um, low-tech options or no-tech options are easily accessible. It just requires us to spend some time and identify what are their strengths and how can we um, you know, fit something that may be no tech or low tech within that while they're evolving and recovering. Um, so it could be an eye gaze board. There's lots of different ways of eye, of using eye gaze. Um, it could be if they, you know, if they do have mobility, maybe they can point to a system. Can they spell? Maybe they can use an alphabet board or a topic board, um, a word board, right? So there's lots of options and it's really up to us to identify what are the strategies that are helpful and then fit you know using that as our guiding tool to see what what might be a good thing to put in place now and i want to share something that made me think of if you've got a patient with a tracheostomy they can't always use a speaking valve right off the bat but that doesn't mean you're not working with them because you then say well what can they use like mm-hmm. you were saying, so it may be a no tech or a low tech option mm-hmm. to help them have communication until they are appropriate to use a valve. So we don't just wait, you know, until the, mm-hmm. until a valve can be used. You don't wait until high tech AAC can be used. Exactly. And, you know, one thing, particularly if you're somebody who, who isn't able to have a valve yet, do they have a way to get someone's attention? It's, you know, it's one thing to put the call bell and make sure it's in reach, but can they use the call bell? Can they push that button adequately if they have, um, if they're having a hard time with their fine motor movement or even strength to use that call bell? They can be set up with maybe even like a button or a strip. There's so many different attachments um, for switches that can be put into place so that they can at least get attention from somebody. So if we're looking at patients' rights to access communication and some of the ethical considerations that we as clinicians have to provide those services. Can you think of any, anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure people keep in mind as far as well, these I, areas I, go? I think one of the main things is that there are resources out there um, and using the resources that are available and many of them are not 
don't, they don't cost anything. Um, you know, RERC has a, lots and lots and lots of resources. Um, there is the patient provider communication um, website, and they have tons of tools and resources that are um, available to anyone. There's no cost for any of it. And that's also a lot of really useful information to guide you through the process. Um, and there's uh, individuals, you know, there's an email, there's individuals that you can contact to even, you know, ask specific questions to get guidance as well. And to kind of summarize what we were talking about, it kind of boils back to what we've talked about in earlier podcasts, but having competency in what you're doing. And if you don't have those competencies and you're not, you haven't had the exposure to some of these areas with AAC or using a valve and helping a patient access communication in some way, then seeking out professional development, some sort of continuing education, maybe a mentor, uh, but having that support to help you progress and, and work with that patient, whether you're at the beginning of the assessment or whether you're farther down the road and whatever you're working with on, maybe you don't have as much knowledge of, mm -hmm. um, but it's something that patients have a right to and Ethically, we have a responsibility to provide it. And the other big thing is always presume competence, right? Um, that is that is the golden rule, presume competence. Um, just because they can't speak verbally, if it does not mean that they're not competent and they don't know what they want to say, they don't have those language skills. Some um, some patients, they are, they're locked in and they just can't get out. And that's really, that's our role. Um, our role is to help them to find that gateway to get out to communicate. I love that. I think that's a good little point to end on. Well, not even a little point, that's a big point to end on. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate your time today, Rachel, and joining me again to talk about AAC and a little bit of trach, you know, tracheostomy patients and kind of the blend, but but focusing on the patient's right to communicate and our ethical responsibility to help them find a way to participate in their care. And uh, so I really appreciate your time again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.